BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, but you're going to hear this on Saturday. And our guest is, introduce yourself, guest. <laughs> uh, I'm Alden Lowry. I'm uh, the senior editor of the Race, Class, and Communities Desk at WBEZ. And um, I'm five foot six and three quarters. Uh, <laughs> I'm born and raised in Chicago on the south side. A uh, little time in public housing as a kid, but uh, the Alvin Gresham neighborhood for the rest of my childhood. Uh, love the job that I do. Love the work that I've been involved in uh, as a journalist here in Chicago, uh, examining writing um, and hopefully educating people about issues of, uh, of race and class and inequality in Chicago, how it's uh, it's part of our core as a city. It's so, so deep in terms of our history and our legacy, and it's still a part of kind of who we are today. And so my hope is the work that I've done wherever I've been, from the Chicago Reporter to the BGA to the Metropolitan Planning Council and now with WBEZ, that that will be uh, kind of the thread that uh, that people will hopefully kind of grab onto in the work uh, that comes out of it. Alden, I forgot the PGA. I forgot. I forgot. I, in my mind, I Alden Lowry uh, is first of all. This is how I would do it. Number one, a graduate of Whitney Young, and number two, a Chicago Reporter alum. Because yes. many years ago, I worked at the Chicago way before Alden. Uh, I worked at the Chicago Reporter, and number three, uh, Metropolitan Planning Council. Because when I had my other existence. Uh, as a radio show, show talk host. What was the name of that station, uh, D? WCUR Fire. Yeah, WCUR Fire. <laughs> Beat it! Uh, anyway, all that was a regular, a regular monthly guest on my show. We talk about demographic issues and we're going to get into those. But I just want to point out to our listeners, this show is generally um, videotaped and you can see it on uh, YouTube, but the bonus specials aren't. For the second week in a row, <laughs> second week in a row, uh, my bonus guests and I are wearing the same colored shirt. <laughs> Some kind of subliminal <laughs> mess, some kind of mental telepathy or something you got going. This I, I, interview I, I, on the Ben Jarowski Show is brought to you by the color purple. <laughs> We're both wearing purple. Last week, uh, Henry... Uh, Davis and I, you get, yeah, you we're both wearing red. Red polos. Looks red like you guys polos. got out of a Target training. <laughs> By the way, I want to urge everybody, uh, yourself included, Alden, if you haven't already, check out the interview with uh, Henry Davis. I'm just going to plug it one more time. Uh, and he is a um, councilman, that's what they call him, in South Bend, Indiana, uh, which is the city where Mayor Pete, mayor Pete yeah. uh, represents. And he ran, Henry ran against Mayor Pete for mayor in 2015. And if you want a different perspective ah, on Mayor Pete interesting. than the sort of glowing perspectives that you'll get, uh, you might want to listen to that uh, interview with uh, Henry Davis, who by coincidence happens to be the younger brother of Stacey Davis Gates, who is one of the leaders of the Chicago Teacher Union. Anyway, uh, Henry and I were wearing the same uh, colored shirt, and now I am wearing the same culture with Alden Lowry. All right. All right, so it cannot be an Alden Lowry interview. Uh, and I don't care if he's working for the reporter or the Metropolitan Planning Council or WBEZ, where you are now currently working, Alden, without me asking you about demographics. Uh, it's an obsession that I have, and I think you shared a little I bit. Do. Um, and essentially, we're talking about the changes that have occurred in our lifetime in the city of Chicago, population changes, black people moving out, uh, white people moving in, which is a complete reverse of everything that was going on when I first moved to Chicago and in the 70s or in the 80s and uh, we've always struggled you and I try to figure out what's going on and why it's going on uh, but I'm going to um, show you give you some numbers that I was telling you about before that I got from a Sarah Carp mm -hmm. uh, article the legendary the great Sarah Carp education reporter for BEZ and she noted when Mayor Rahm 
took office in May of 2011, follow me in this, okay. there were approximately 404,000 students in the Chicago public schools. So 404,000 students in the Chicago public schools. When Mayor Rahm left office uh, just a few weeks ago, there were 361,000 students in the Chicago public schools. So the number of students in the Chicago public schools fell by, uh, well, almost 45,000. Uh, there were 45,000 fewer students in the schools when Rom left than from when there were when he got in. Uh, and of that, the, the breakdown, the racial breakdown, in 2011, it was 42% black. In 2019, it's now 37% black. It was uh, 9% white in 2011, and it is now 10.5% white. So I believe, though, and the, the Hispanic population has roughly stayed the same, uh, at least in terms of the overall uh, percentage. percentage yeah. So, Alden, it sure sounds to me when I look at those numbers that everything that uh, you've been talking about with me over these years is uh, holding true. Uh, that uh, the city in the last decade or so, black people moving out and white people are either uh, moving in or just staying stable enough that they're rising uh, as a proportion of the total. Yeah, and the, the numbers, the white population figures actually have been growing uh, and they've been growing actually uh, faster in volume, overall numbers than any other group. As a percentage basis, they are second to uh, to Asians. The Asian population has actually been growing at a faster rate from a percentage standpoint. But Asians are roughly, I think, maybe six percent of the city's population, so they're a much smaller group. Whites are about thirty percent, a little over thirty percent of the, the city's overall population. Uh, the schools are a very interesting uh, thing because think about those numbers: ten and a half percent. But and then I just gave you this 30, 31 percent, 32 percent number for the overall population. So even though the white population is growing, they are still uh, as a group uh, very underrepresented in Chicago public schools. And uh, as you might imagine, it doesn't mean that white kids aren't going to school. It's just that they're not going to public schools at the same clip that uh, that other racial groups um, are attending a public school in Chicago. Um, and if you look at a number of places that have gentrified and have their percentage of their population has become more white over the years, I'm thinking explicitly of places like uh, Washington, D.C., um, the change in terms of which was known in the 90s as a chocolate city and George uh, Clinton <laughs> and uh, uh, because it was uh, African-Americans, if they weren't the majority, they were certainly the plurality mm -hmm. in D.C. And so that's certainly changed in a way that's, I think, even a little more dramatic than what Chicago is seeing. But uh, the the popular the white population within the schools in D.C. was very similar to what it's here in Chicago. I think it's maybe around 14 percent now. But over the last, I would say, maybe five to 10 years, that number has crept up from around maybe 10 or 11 percent to about 14 percent. So it's a slow climb. But D.C. is one of the few places. And I took a look at these numbers some months ago just out of curiosity. D.C. is one of the few places that's actually seeing a fairly sharp increase in terms of its public school population for white students. Um, and Chicago is, even though that percentage has come up, if you actually look at the number of white kids in CPS, the number is only up a very small amount. Yeah. It's just that the numbers for for African-Americans in particular, but even Latinos, the last three or four years, the, num the, the volume, the actual number of uh, Latino students in CPS has actually come down a little bit each year. Mm -hmm. um, and when Af the African-American population in CPS has actually been dropping since the 90s, but uh, it had been offset in terms of the total number of students in CPS because the Latino population was growing, but now the Latino population is declining as well. And so the 45,000 or so drop in overall students in CPS during Rahm's tenure includes uh, a, a decline to some degree, at least during the second term of Latino students, um, which is troubling. But the number of white students and the number of Asian students isn't going up dramatically to, uh, to offset that. And the system overall may not be white enough or there may not be enough schools that are white enough to really 
uh, and I'll just say it to give a lot of white parents the confidence oh, yeah. to send their kids say it. Uh, to uh, to public school. Yeah, and you're getting at something uh, that's really crucial when it comes to city planning, whether people are admitted or not, uh, and that is this sort of psychological barrier. And what else? To, a tipping point, I think, is what they call it, uh, Alden. Where if the number of black kids in a public school goes crosses a certain threshold, then there will be a dramatic plummet in the number of white kids as a white parents make the decision. Oh, this school's getting a little iffy for me. I want to get out of here. And uh, but I I wonder if. Uh, the demographic studies show that the reverse is true. Follow me in this: that if the number of black kids falls, white parents go, "Hmm, I hear this school's getting better. Uh, I hear this school's really getting better. I think I'll send a little Johnny there." Mm-hmm. Is that trend uh, also prevalent? You know, um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, my hunch would be that that number would have to fall quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say that, uh, one thing that I did look at during my time at MPC was looking at uh, the selective enrollment high schools. And so the, which I think is a fascinating subject. So the elite of the 11 selective enrollment schools, we're talking about Young, we're talking about um, uh, Peyton, Northside College Prep, um, uh, Jones, and and Lane Tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's not to to diminish the other uh, six selective enrollment schools. My middle daughter goes to Brooks, which is a great school on the far south side, uh, but there's some other great schools, Lindblom. Uh, there's also uh, Westinghouse, which uh, has uh, really become one of the better schools in the city. Uh, there's also uh, South Shore, uh, Lindblom, or did I mention Lindblom King. already? Uh, King is one, and then there's uh, the school on the southwest side. Um, Hancock. Hancock, thank you. So um, so all uh, you know, really good schools in their own right. Uh, but among those elite schools, the African-American population has declined, and the white population has gone up, particularly in places like Young, in Jones, uh, and in Peyton. Um, Northside College Prep, I think, from its inception, uh, right around 2000, has always had a very uh, kind of uh, a strong uh, a white representation among its student body, uh, as has Lane. But those other three schools were much more of a real kind of mix that mirrored uh, the city of Chicago um, in terms of right around the, t- the turn of the uh, millennium, actually, right around 2000. Uh, Young, uh, Peyton, when it first started, and uh, Jones, when it, uh, when, it, when it became a selective enrollment school, which was a couple years later, I believe two, three, four years later after Peyton and Northside College Prep came into existence. But their student bodies were very uh, mixed, um, but the African-American population at Jones and at Peyton has dipped below 20 percent. Uh, at Young, it's in the low 20 percent uh, now, and, and African-Americans who were the largest group at Young and were a much larger group than any other student uh, body or uh, student group when I was there, you know, umpteen million years ago. <laughs> Come on, you even... <laughs> Uh, I graduated in '87, so it's been it's been Whoa, over thirty. It's been over thirty dang. years. Yeah, you're yeah. still no. a lot younger than I am. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, well that, that, that helps me feel a little better. Okay. Um, but um, but yeah. I, I mean, Young felt like a black school when yeah. I was there, and I want to say African Americans were roughly about fifty percent of the population. Uh, and at that time, I could be wrong about this, but when I was in high school, my understanding was that. Young was meant to mirror the demographics of the city in terms of in terms of CPS, not the city, right. but in terms of CPS. And at that time, African-Americans were roughly about half of the uh, uh, CPS student body. Uh, now, student uh, the selective enrollment schools, because Young wasn't even considered, quote unquote, selective enrollment. It was a magnet school. So the uh, policies have changed a great deal, but uh, even into the 90s, uh, African-Americans were still kind of the major group at Young, and now they're the third largest group. Uh, so it's 22% black right now at Whitney Young? Um, I'm not sure the roughly. exact number, but it's less than 25%. Wow, well, okay, less than, okay. So here's, uh, wow, there's a reverse question. So to your, to your, yeah. to your, mm-hmm. your point, those are schools, at least those three schools in particular, the African-American population is declining. The white population is increasing in those schools. But I would say there's probably and I almost have to hold my tongue when I say this. I was going to say there's a lot more kind of going into that. But uh, but there is the potential that that is something that may make those schools a little more. 
uh, interesting for white parents than perhaps um, thinking about Lane and, and Northside College Prep, where the white population has always been uh, much more robust. Um, you got Jones, which is also located in you know the the heart of the city, as is Peyton. And to tell you the truth, as is Young. Young's not terribly far; it's in the West Loop, and uh, so that part of the city is growing. And the white when we talk about white population growth in the city of Chicago, the epicenter of that growth is in and around downtown, mm-hmm. and in some respects, uh, maybe Lincoln Park, Lakeview, places like that, which are also growing. Lakeview is now the I'm not mistaken, is the largest by population community area in the city of Chicago, surpassing Austin, who had held that uh, distinction for decades, primarily because Austin is just a huge space yeah. uh, uh, geographically, but uh, but it has dipped below Lakeview in terms of overall population. But, uh, but that's where a lot of that white population growth is occurring. And so those schools may be attractive also because, uh, you know, they're, they're centrally located and uh, that's where people, a lot of a lot of white folks, a large white folks are living. All right, and uh, I openly admit this. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that I think I'm the only person in the city of Chicago, white or black, who thinks that integration is a goal that our our government uh, should be encouraging as much as possible. So, as such, I believe in what they call a quota system for uh, these special enrollment kids. I realize, although I admit this up front, I am totally alone on this issue. I'm not afraid to be alone on an issue. I wouldn't say you're alone. I think there are a number of people who, who well, believe that. I'll put it to you this way. As a policy implemented by the city of Chicago, it was abandoned years ago. It started, it was, I remember when Paul Vallis said that bus, spending money on busing is a waste of money. And he and the reason we had busing in Chicago was to voluntarily integrate the schools. The only way you could do it is if you move a kid out of a segregated neighborhood into a a neighborhood that where they would encounter children of other races. And so Vallis said that was a waste of money. And we ever since then, we've been abandoning the goal of integration. And so as a result, I think you're seeing that. Well, I think we see it citywide. Uh, with our these larger demographic tr- trends, but we're seeing that as well um, with the with the schools. Yeah, the schools are. are uh, I mean, there's there's an aspect of the schools that is a, 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 a essentially uh, an outgrowth of the way we live in terms of the segregation of our communities, particularly with neighborhood attendance area schools. But for these selective enrollment schools or other schools that draw from students citywide. You would think that those would be places where we would see much more. And and to their credit, those are the most uh, uh, kind of uh, diverse or integrated schools in the city. Even uh, Northside College Prep and, and Lane still have much more uh, integration than many of our communities. But um, what what we're also seeing is that Lane, Northside College Prep, Young, Peyton and um, Jones are all central city or north side schools and the other six selective enrollment schools are either on the west side the south side or the southwest side and those schools are largely african-american with the exception of hancock which is largely latino and so those schools even though they are among the best high schools in the city mm-hmm. are deeply segregated and so when i think about selective enrollments i think i have a concern about the declining number of black students in those elite schools but I think it's also equally interesting that there's very little interest in folks who are not black or Latino going to those other schools. And like I said, Westinghouse, particularly Westinghouse, Brooks and Lindblom and Hancock also, which tests very well. Uh, those are some really good schools. Yeah. And so if you live on the southeast side or the far southwest side, if you're on the southeast side, so you're in Hedwish or somewhere out there. Brooks should be a place that you're interested in sending your kid to school. Yeah. If you're living in uh, Mount Greenwood, uh, Hancock might actually be a closer school to you, or Limbloom might actually be a school that should be of interest to you. But there aren't very many white kids from uh, Mount Greenwood that are going to uh, to Limbloom or to Hancock. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's something that is, you know, they'd rather probably send their kid to a, a, a private school that's out in, in their area. But I think that's also a part of this whole struggle that we have as a city with race that we don't we don't give enough time and attention. Yes. Uh, and uh, I should add that part of the reason why um, 
there uh, we have abandoned busing as a way to integrate is that the uh, the consent decree that mandated that the city of Chicago have integration as a goal uh, is no longer exists so the city's free to be as segregated as the uh, <laughs> city wants to be and apparently yeah. city loves segregation because we do a good job of it uh, you said something to me uh, in an interview uh, I forget it was about a year ago and we were talking about demographics and you were talking about the, the, the decline of the black population in the city of Chicago uh, as we just it's evidenced by these numbers in the public schools uh, and I said to you I'm doing this from memory um, my goodness that <laughs> why did why didn't the people in positions of power do something about this and I'm paraphrasing you Alden but you said uh, Ben I'm not sure the people saw it as a problem and it was I quote you all the time uh, I give you credit I just steal your quotes Alden you'd be happy to know uh, so um, well, you probably spice them up with a you know occasional uh, not that I don't, I'm not that I'm averse to being profane at times yeah. but Ben you're much better at it uh, yeah well uh, by, by the way you are the difference between having a podcast and a radio show you're allowed to curse so if it slips out it slips out oh great all right, so um, I just got finished saying how it's people who run the public school systems don't see it as a problem. And you're absolutely correct. There's no reason to where white parents on the south side of Chicago, and there are a lot of white parents on the south side of Chicago, don't send their kid to Brooks. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I just, it's a great school. It's a great, great school. beautiful facility. It used to be Mendel High School. Yeah, it's incredible. And Blimboom, those two girls that were in the front page of the Sun-Times, those twins, they're going to Northwestern and Duke. Hey, White parents, your kid can go to Northwestern yeah. to Duke, okay? Yeah. Uh, so these are great schools, smart kids, you know? Uh, but there's clearly this mental block that exists on the part of parents. Now, is there a mental block, in your humble opinion, uh, among black parents who don't want to see, don't want to send their kid to a school that's too uh, too white, too too many white people, they'll think that there'll be prejudice against their kid. Um, I think there there certainly is a concern, and I'll I'll even make it personal. My oldest daughter went to Jones, and um, she loved it. She had a great experience there as a student. Socially, she experienced some struggles there, and and not from the standpoint of kids uh you know doing incredibly insensitive things but uh and she experienced this also when she was in college which i think a lot of african-americans shared the same experience who went to you know predominantly white institutions uh that there is as there is in society uh there are challenges that we have around racial differences we see the world differently uh, we think about uh, political issues differently. We've had different life experiences. We don't often know how really to kind of coexist um, and to to kind of share the same space, uh, to relinquish uh, the stage, uh, to allow other voices to uh, to have their say. And so she experienced that at Jones. She helped uh, restart kind of a black student group there at Jones. They would hold programs. And, uh, you know, she's a bit of a, a spark plug. So, you know, they were doing programming to talk about the challenges of being, um, you know, a, a student group that was maybe 15, 16 percent of the of the population there at Jones and having to struggle with. Uh, instances where people would say or do insensitive things, um, uh, sometimes uh, being challenged, uh, their their intellect perhaps being challenged by um, by uh, by teachers there, uh, feeling that uh, they always had to uh, kind of prove their worth and their value and why they were in one of the best schools in the city, uh, and not just from their students, uh, their uh, their fellow students, but even from. Uh, from people who were instructing them. And when they wanted to talk about those things, there was often, so not only are they experiencing that from time to time, but then when they talk about it, they were kind of getting, or uh, people were trying to shut them down um, or were, uh, you know, not allowing them and respecting that this was the experience that they were having. And so as much as she wanted to stand up and talk about this and to organize around it, and, and she did, uh, it was dismaying uh, to kind of have, to be in that environment and to have the kind of pushback that she experienced, and to some degree she experienced that also when she was in college. So um, 
I think those are real life challenges um, for African Americans in a variety of walks of life. I've experienced that in my own uh, professional life as well. I, I, I think about every job I've had, literally, either in the institution as a whole or in the immediate team that I worked with. I was the only black male on staff at each of the last four or five journalism positions that I've had. And there are certainly times when I've felt isolated and at least I've had to question whether or not I am being, you know, kind of honored and respected and valued in that space, particularly when there are moments of conflict. And so, yeah, as a parent, when you think about putting your child out in the world and you're sending them to a space where there aren't very many people who look like them, particularly if it is considered an elite institution. Uh, yeah, that's that's got to be something where people will say, you know what, maybe I'd rather send my kid to this really good school where uh, that looks like Brooks or it looks like Lynn Bloom or looks like Westinghouse. And when I presented the numbers to CPS about as kind of the growing racial kind of stratification within the selective enrollment uh, community of CPS high schools, that was one of the things that they pointed to. Well, you know, a lot of black families are just deciding not to send their kids to Young. They're sending them to to Brooks. And so what's the problem there? <laughs> I like the accent. That you, <laughs> That's all for me. That wasn't. That was really good. <laughs> so, um, so, I, I, so, so there yeah. may very well be a, a thread of truth there. I was raising the question about is there something happening within those other selective enrollment schools that perhaps uh, is more difficult for, for students to, to get in, but also the you know presenting the point that maybe this isn't a great thing that mm-hmm. you've got the numbers diminishing in the way they were. But um, but yeah, I think that's certainly something that uh, that black parents uh, think about. And uh, just I would say uh, socially, I have sensed um, uh, there are a number of black parents now uh, who are kind of in my demo, my age group, you know, are sending their kids to college now who are very uh, high on the notion of uh, HBCUs, even if they didn't attend an HBCU themselves. Historically um, black. black. Yeah, colleges mm-hmm. and universities. And the notion is that there's something that they will get in, you know, what's seen by many, especially those who've gone to those schools, a very nurturing and empowering environment. And I remember when I was in school and thinking about college, one thought that I remember hearing, I didn't have a strong feeling either way, but one thing I remember hearing was that, you know, well, those institutions aren't really what the world looks like. And so going to a University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I went to school, is actually perhaps better prep for the world because the world is going to look like that. But yeah, it was hell at times being in that environment, uh, given the dynamics. And uh, But I think a lot of parents are enamored with the notion of sending their kids to HBCUs because the thought is that that's a place where they will get uh, they will get it. They will be infused with with confidence, uh, with a sense of empowerment, uh, even a sense of entitlement. Like, you know what? I can do this. I can go out here and conquer the world because my years at Howard or at Hampton or many of the other dozens of other HBCUs that exist. I will be uh, given armor to help me go out into this world. And maybe, yes, my campus isn't what the world looks like, but here's a place where I can get the things that I really need in order to survive out mm-hmm. in that world. So, um, so yeah, I, I have no doubt that there are parents out there. You know, we look back now on our decision about Brooks and we say, you know, we're really happy that this institution is here for her and that when she goes there, um, she's got a lot of kids that look like her. Uh, she can feel safe, she can feel comfortable, and she can also know that we're, you know, that that school is one of the best schools in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I got to tell you, and uh, that the message I take from what you just said, uh, and it goes back to what I had talked about. If you want to have integration in society, you got to be proactive. You just can't just say, oh, we're going to have integration. There's so many forces that work against integration. There's so many mental psychological forces in the minds of white people and the minds of black people. If you want to make integration work, you have to put some effort into it. That's, this is my belief, Alden. You can't just say, oh, we're going to put all these kids in the school. And then well, who could be in the smart kid class, the white kid or the black kid? Are you going to use the smart kid class as a way to tell white parents that it's quote unquote safe for their kid to go to school and then you're going to tell all black parents well you kids belong in like the remedial classes you have to work at it maybe you have to hire counselors maybe you have to have kumbaya sessions and talk about things you know I mean uh, to me the the benefit of an integrated school isn't just 
that, hey, we've got an integrated school to because even within that integrated. I mean, if you look at Chicago from a, from 30 miles above. Right. We're an integrated city. Right. We're 30 percent. I love this, this accent. <laughs> what is it? I mean, it remind, it's like <laughs> where is this accent come from? Is this like a. Uh, Richard Pryor doing a white guy. <laughs> One time we had this thing, a tangent within a tangent. We were doing a show at the hideout and Will Gazzardi was on the stage, his state rep. And oh my God, Alden, he, he, was imita- he was imitating his imitation of Bruce Rauner. And I looked at him, I go, that is Richard Pryor doing a white guy. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, man, but no, it's, it's so okay. funny. I love this image. <laughs> uh, usually I just go like that. I, so, I forgot my train of thought now. Um, I can't remember what you're saying uh, either. It'll... Oh, no, you were saying it was a good riff. You were saying that if you just look at the city of oh, Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the value of integration. So yeah. the value of integration isn't just to pat our backs on and say, and say hey, look, we've got integration. Because even in quote-unquote integrated spaces, you can find a lot of a, a lack of integration, you know, segregation and, and other issues. Um, but if you've got people under the same roof, whether it's a school or some other setting, it's an opportunity to have the kind of dialogue that I think we ultimately really have to have in order to kind of make our way through things. People have to get uh, an opportunity to know folks that they may not necessarily know very well, they may not interact with, they may have thoughts or stereotypical beliefs or what have you. And the only way to break those things down is to force people to say, okay, you may think something about John from Inglewood, but here John from Inglewood works beside you every day. And this is an opportunity for you to actually engage, mm-hmm. have dialogue, and for you to really kind of get an understanding of who John is and what makes him tick, uh, for you to see in the ways in which you and John think very much alike, even though you may come from different worlds. Uh, and for you perhaps to have an understanding that there are 30,000 other people that look like John that live in Inglewood. And if you can be safe in your space with John at work, you can probably be safe in that space with 30,000 people who look like John and live beside him and go to the grocery store with him and everything else. Um, And uh, I think oftentimes what people, people can be in those integrated spaces and even if they have really good relationships with their with with folks that they know that they work with that they go to school with who come from different parts of the city or what have you when they go back home and they think about the communities that those folks come from mm-hmm. they divorce the individual from the community yeah. well john's okay yeah but john's neighborhood might not necessarily be okay yeah. and um it's funny i worked with a guy a really good guy and uh Um, we had a great relationship and when he talked about communities on the South side, um, he was very disparaging about those communities. And I didn't have the, I would say the confidence in our relationship to call him out on it. Um, but I thought to myself, dude, you call these crap communities. I'm, I live there today. I grew up there. Yeah, there are struggles, but the community's not crap. You know, it, it's not a, you know, like Donald Trump caught, caught hell for S-hole countries. Uh, I'm sorry, for shithole countries. You can I, say I, I it, man. It's it. a podcast. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah. he knew that Alden was a good guy, so on and so forth. When I left, he said glowing things about me leaving. Your but, friend, not Donald Trump. Right, yes, yeah, okay, yes, yeah. Yes. All right, just. You know. um, but he could not apparently draw that same he couldn't necessarily see the same qualities that he saw in me in the tens of thousands of people who lived in Auburn Gresham or who lived in Inglewood or West Inglewood or Washington Heights or other South Side communities and I think that's the challenge so even when we're together there's still a lot of work that we have to do to kind of get over that hump to get Mm -hmm. over that mystery to kind of break down those walls that uh, I mean that subliminally we hear over and over again because we're watching the news or we're seeing this and and all these other ways in which we're being told about particular communities and we don't take advantage of people who are right in front of us who can tell us you know hey or can invite us out or whatever the case might be let's break down those barriers so when we have these spaces i guess my point is 
you know, that's an opportunity for us to take advantage of that. And, and we don't do that. We just stop and go, hey, look, <laughs> we're doing great. We've got 30 percent here and 30 yeah. percent there. And uh, <laughs> I haven't seen the whole Oak Park series. Um, oh, yeah. About Steve the James high series. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, he's caught some he's taken some heat about that also. But uh, but I thought it was fascinating a little bit that I did see mm-hmm. where within this, you know, this uh, seemingly ideal setting that there was a lot of tension and even with the best of intentions Mm -hmm. uh there were you know african-american students still felt very marginalized Mm -hmm. um and there was disbelief and even kind of anger from uh, not only the uh the school's uh, administration but from the community as a whole and i don't know if that was just because they they didn't want to hear that because that wasn't the picture that they had of their community and of that particular school. But um, there's a truth to the ways in which minority communities, and I'll say particularly African-Americans, can be um, uh, marginalized, I guess the best way I can think of it uh, in terms of describing that experience, even when no one is, you know, kind of wearing a hood or, 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 or doing something else very deliberately, uh, to uh, from a standpoint of white supremacy or so on and so forth. This kind of stuff is just in our bones, mm-hmm. you know, and it exudes even when we don't think, uh, you know, then we're not being intentional about it. And so that's something that we we have to be very honest about and talk about and accept and then say, wow, OK, I, I didn't quite get this. And maybe now I'm starting to get it a little bit. Uh, for, a one, for a moment, it seemed like we were getting into this, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of this because when I left MPC, we had just gone through a diversity, equity, and inclusion training among the staff and had a few sessions where we had some very kind of eye-opening conversations. I got to WBEZ, and uh, within a couple of months, we were doing the same thing there, uh, and there's been a diversity committee that's been started, a DEI committee, I would say, and and so there's still some conversations that are happening. Um, but we haven't had m- much activity since the, those sessions that I went to when I first got there. And uh, what those things, it was the first time I've ever done anything like that. And from what I was hearing, that this is kind of like a thing now. A lot of workplaces are doing these kinds of conversations. But I thought it was incredibly uh, valuable, incredibly uncomfortable, but incredibly valuable because that was when the light bulb, at least for some folks, was kind of going off. And it was kind of like, well, I'm not doing anything or trying to do anything to make you feel uncomfortable. But what I don't know is that you come here, the sum total of all of your experiences, and as a person of color, you've been in many spaces where you've been in meetings and you want to perk up and say something and a white man in a room cuts you off and it's the seventh time that's happened in the two weeks that you've been at the job. Um, or it's a space where um, uh, a, a, a conversation is happening about uh, something of enormous kind of cultural value to you and someone diminishes it um, as, you know, just some fat that's this or that and so on and so forth. And it's like, okay, you come in here and then I do the same thing. I'm not trying to, you know, offend you or diminish you or, or, or say that you're not valuable. Uh, but what I don't understand is the ways in which that pain has been exacted upon you, you know, throughout your entire life. And what I don't also don't understand is I don't know the history. Um, and I don't understand the fact that even though I may not intend to, that I have biases, that I come from a place of privilege. Um, and so those are all things that are kind of, I mean, they, they like, try to break it down to some very basic kinds of concepts. Yeah. And, um, and that's the kind of education that I think, that I think we need. I, it should be taught in schools and at a very early age. I well, that, that's, that was my point that, uh, that's ultimately my point. It's not a goal. Nobody cares about it. Yeah. They do these things at work now because they didn't do them when those guys who are at work now were in kindergarten because they didn't think it was important because it really isn't important. All the you're not you're not going to not get into Harvard because your ability you listen to a black guy when he talks. 
you, you understand what I mean? It's yeah. not something it's I'm quoting you to you. It's not <laughs> something people see as a problem, Ben. I'm like, oh yeah, the light went on. Yeah. And, and uh, I got to tell you though, a funny little thing. Oh, is that, is that my phone? That's no, my phone. Oh, your Sorry. phone. Man, you got a loud phone. Um, we had one of those uh, at the reader. We had one of these diversity training sessions uh-huh. and, um, so we were into diversity changes and they b- break you up into groups. And uh, so and it, I don't know if they did it. Your diversity training session was this way, but they, they like at some point you just pair off with there's two people. Mm-hmm. And so the the leader, the facilitator, isn't that what they call them? The facilitator yeah. says, so tell the person that you're with uh, like a story about the first time you became aware of race. I think that's what it was. So I'm leaving all names out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing this exercise. And, uh, you know, so I turn to the person that I'm doing the exercise with. It's just this random person that they chose. And they go, well, the first time I became aware of race was blah, 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 blah. Right in the middle of me telling this person my my heartfelt story. This person goes, uh, uh. <laughs> yawns. I'm like, that is like flunking diversity training, all right? That's supposed to yawn at me when I'm telling my heart. It's like, oh, my God. It's like diversity training 101. Don't yawn at someone when they're pretty, you know, whatever. Anyway, but I hear what you're saying. I'm glad they did the diversity training. I think we should do more diversity yeah. training. But my point was, if we saw it as a goal, if we really believe in diversity training, if we really believe that we should have a country where everybody is equal and we're all represented, listen to what other people are in zone with other people, we would start a lot earlier than we're like, you're 40 or whatever. You got what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, NPR, it's time to do diversity training. Why do we do it back when we're five? Was that and, your voice? Yeah, that was, I don't know. I do so many voices all that I don't even know. I'm schizophrenic. I was just talking to this guy. It's a fascinating book. Have you read this? It's Carlo Rotello. I have it, and I'm dying to open it up. I just uh, I haven't at the time. Well, he was just sitting in that chair oh, where you were sitting. Out of here. I know, I know. It's a small world. The world is is always coming to an end. He was sitting there, and uh, he's a white guy. He grew up in South Shore, okay. and and listening to you just now, it, I went back to my conversation with him and having read the book, and. Uh, you were talking about how, you know, people will say, oh, you're a good guy, Alden, but that neighborhood is a crummy neighborhood that yeah. you're from. And Carlo Rotello was talking about a time when his family grew up, when he was growing up as a kid in South Shore in the 70s, mm-hmm. and he viewed it as a stable middle-class community. Uh, he was one of the few white families uh, in South Shore at the time, but he mm-hmm. viewed it like this is a middle-class community. Yeah. It's the heart and soul of middle-class Chicago. Yeah. I can tell you right now, Alden, that if you ask most white people in the city of Chicago or the suburbs, is South Shore a stable middle-class community? If you ask them that in the 1970s and 1980s, they'd say, hell no. Yeah. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. But it's just funny because in his view, and because he's right. Um, I mean, uh, Ashburn is the community that comes to mind immediately as a very kind of modern example of this. Now, Ashburn, uh, I grew up... Um, uh, my mom left uh, LeClaire Courts when I was uh, about three years old. We moved to 78th and Winchester in Auburn Gresham. And Ashburn was the community immediately to the west. And at that time, Ashburn was mostly white. It was, I mean, probably 80 some odd percent white. And it gradually became more and more African American. And then in later years, particularly the western half of Ashburn has become mostly Latino. I want to say there's like a sliver or corner of the community. Uh, that is still white, but uh, I think the percentage of white residents in Ashburn is less than 10%. Where is Ashburn now? Ashburn is uh, essentially, I think, Western from 79th to 87th, Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, all the way over to Cicero, I believe, wherever the city border. That may be a little off. It might be 75th. I I can't recall exactly. Western's the eastern edge, then. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. and the boundary may technically be the... Penn Central Railroad tracks, like between Oakley and um, Bell or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, so that community in the 90s started to turn African-American and then in the 2000s, like I said, the other half of it, uh, Latino. And uh, so the white population essentially uh, left and was not replaced by other white residents. But that community, the, the black folks that were moving to Ashburn in the 80s and 90s were solid middle class 
African Americans. And, and and as far as I know, it's still a fairly solid middle class community, even though it is now an African American and Latino community. It's still solidly middle class. A lot of homes, uh, some rental, but not a terrible amount of rental. Um, the community that doesn't have the kind of luster that I think that it had, at least in my eyes as a kid, I thought of that as like, you know, you know, like, <laughs> you know like the sun seemed to shine better when I went to, uh, into Ashburn yeah. from, uh, from Auburn Gresham. But, um, but it, a lot of those first wave of people of color that come into white communities are people of color who are literally of the same economic means. And so if, if there are white folks in those situations who fear those folks, uh, they should have an understanding that those folks are those folks probably have more in common with them, particularly economically, than they do from the spaces from which they came. And so uh, I think that's something that people don't quite realize that makes all of this thing even more of a travesty. Yeah. And so uh, when you think about in terms of what a government can do. Uh, do you have anything pops in your mind? I know you're in the business as a journalist. You're not the, you're, uh, you edit stories now, uh, but you're also a person who raised in the city of Chicago. You live in the city of Chicago. You raise your kids in the city of Chicago. Uh, so we have a new mayor. We have to, the old mayor <laughs> has left the building. Uh, can we still talk about the old mayor? <laughs> I could talk about him all day if I want. Because <laughs> I don't think we, I think there's still a lot more to say about. Well, I, take a chill pill, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, my old friend, Rom. Uh, well, I'll just speak for my, you know, Mick Dumkey, our, our mutual friend, has mildly chastised me because he points out to me, uh, Alden, that as a columnist, I'm uh, in, a, in a host of a podcast, I'm free to vent my opinions. And many of the people coming to my studio are journalists. <laughs> like, I'm still a journalist, too. Let me meant that. They're reporters, beat reporters, and they're not allowed to, to say whatever they feel. Yeah. Uh, so I try to be respectful since Mick uh, mildly chastised me on that point. Uh, at the same time, I really struggle with this because I believe that Rahm Emanuel is a complete and utter disaster from almost every single aspect uh, as mayor of the city of Chicago in any way, shape, or form when you take a look at our challenges as a city. And you can name any issue, and I can make an argument that we are in worse off shape now than we were when he came in. And it's not something I hold against the guy. I don't know the guy. Mm -hmm. For all I know, he's a wonderful human being. Do you follow? I'm just yeah. talking about yeah. how he's run the city. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think it's like post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> this dude was a lunatic, all right? It was all about branding him, and he ran the city that way. Uh, and so we're dealing with these issues of, of race, and from the get-go, when he closed those mental health clinics, it's like, what? <laughs> I still can't even get the words out, Alden. I feel that he, he, it was almost as though he wanted black people to move out of the city of Chicago. He almost like he, either that or he was just so willfully indifferent to the consequences of his decisions as the chief executive officer that he didn't realize it was so i don't know which is worse you know yeah i you know to the the, the point i think and this is where you started and i might have kind of drifted off a little bit but uh, around the the loss of african-american population not being seen as a, a as problem. problem the alden lowry statement yes <laughs> um uh you know i um you know, and and I I have no idea what's going on, what was going on in in uh, in the mayor's head. You know, so I, I can't say that you know he didn't care or what have you. But I certainly thought that, particularly when it seemed, I mean, he he came into office a year after, or right around the time he came into office, there was all of this press about the fact that the black population had fallen in Chicago from 2000 to 2010 by 180 thousand. So. In my mind, even from the day he took office or very soon after he took office, this was something that people were talking about. And a light bulb should have gone off that said, hey, look, something's wrong. You know, you know, Chicago was losing population, black population at the same clip, a very near the same clip that Detroit was. And the problems that were inherent in Detroit, I think, were were plainly clear and were talked about the city was near bankruptcy and so on and so forth. So to me, even 
without the continuing loss, um, there should have been something that put that on the radar screen for the city's leader that, that this was an issue. And I don't know why it never seemed to become that for him or for, for his administration. And maybe there were people within the administration who were saying, Mr. Mayor, we got to do something about this. You know, these communities are emptying out. They're hollowing out. That's going to cause problems for us in terms of perhaps from a safety perspective, perhaps from the public schools perspective. The population was already kind of declining in CPS during the decade before he got into office. So this certainly should have been something that was on his radar screen. We, we don't know exactly what was being said uh, within City Hall, but certainly from a policy perspective, the city did basically nothing to directly address this. To the mayor's credit, there were some things that he did to try to help with uh, economic development, to try to help with some other things. I'm, I'm just Name trying two. to be. I'm trying to. I'm trying to offer some balance. Um, well, the, the name na- one. The neighborhood opportunity bonus was something that he threw out a lot. Um, All right, that's one. You know, I. I'll I'll, it, I'll point out it was a sliver of the bill the millions was, yes. that he developed. So yes. they they threw a crumb. Yeah. Here you you're, go. You're absolutely, uh, okay, you're just throwing abs- that out there. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, uh, it's hard to name one. There were some other things that uh, that the administration did. Uh, I can remember the dep- one of the deputy mayor uh, uh, Bob Rivkin who uh, took me to task uh, in an email when I was at NPC and writing about the decline of the black population and so on and so forth. And you know he was he wrote a long email telling me. All of the great things that uh, that the mayor had done with regard to uh, South and West Side communities. So it, it was a list. Uh, you know, I, I could quibble with a lot of what he put in the list, but but they at least had a list. So and if no one else, the mayor and his closest advisors. <laughs> well, it's nice they had a list. He'd done, he'd done a number of things. Okay. So it's good uh, to know. But uh, but yes, this certainly from the moment he came into office, this should have been something that was uh, seen as a red flag and I don't know why it wasn't my guess would be that uh, you know Rahm had a lot of ignorance about what was happening in those communities even when times were better and certainly as things were struggling I just I just think it was a a severe blind spot for him all I'm going to I, I I was moved, looking ahead, not back, but you you were the one. Let's just the record straight. All there was is said. Go back and look back. I remember when Rom first ran, and it was 2011. I want to say, yeah. Uh, there was a debate, and they were talking about schools. And I I'm doing this off the top of my mind. I'm paraphrasing. Go back to what you just said about your friend who said, "Oh, I love Alden, but the neighborhood he comes yeah. from is crummy." Yeah. Rom got up there and said, and I'm paraphrasing: "There's like about three good schools in the city of Chicago, and one of them is Walter Payton, and the other one is Northside Prep, and then there's some charters, and all the rest of them are bad." I'm paraphrasing. Wow. That showed. I'll send you the articles. I I was sat there, my jaw dropped. Wow. Astounding ignorance about the public schools of Chicago. Just the characterization, the word like good versus bad. What does that mean? mean and the notion that there was just like it was that one or two good schools we'd be like Peyton I think he had Northside Prep on there I mean he may not even have been aware of Young's Mm -hmm. prominence you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying it shows such a, a a level of ignorance about the public schools of Chicago. Like, he didn't even take the time to study a book on it or you'll read a, a manual or something, an article on yeah. it, you know? Like, like the top five scoring schools in the city of Chicago are all public schools, charter schools aren't even in the top 10, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's... Yeah, the, the the city, I think, did a disservice by not, I mean, he made mention on the Charlie Rose show, like in March or April, that, you know, mayor of Chicago was a job that in 2010, that was something that he had always kind of envisioned or, or dreamed about, like if he had a dream job. Uh, and he descended upon us in Chicago in, in October of 2010 after he'd left the White House. And the, the field literally particularly among the white political establishment in Chicago, just literally just cleared the field for him. And um, and he, you know, he kind of, uh, I mean, he had, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chico gave him, uh, 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 Gary Chico gave him a little bit of a run. I can't remember, but it was another uh, prominent, uh, maybe Miguel DeValle. Miguel DeValle was in now our race. school board chair yes, uh, yes. President so of our school he's, board. he's back back in back in business so um uh but it 
he never really got to face, I think, the kind of gauntlet that he should have to say, okay, well, tell us why you're the right person. For, I, we know you're a big wig within the Democratic Party. We know you've worked for two presidents, but can you be mayor of Chicago? And you haven't, I mean, there was a question about whether he was even a resident, <laughs> even yeah. a resident right? Uh, he just, he never faced the kinds of uh, scrutiny that I think he really needed to, so for people to really kind of make, make an issue of, of how much he didn't know. And, and I think the eight years after that, there were a lot of times when, you know, that ignorance you know, really kind of became apparent. You know what so. they call that? Uh, reverse affirmative action. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that one for a while, okay? Imagine one black guy in the world. Just, you're going to get to be the mayor, you know? I don't even know if you no. call it reverse. I think you just called it affirmative life. <laughs> just life. This is just how it's been. Uh, you know? <laughs> oh, you don't know anything about Chicago? Uh, you don't live in Chicago? You never really lived in here? Hey, why don't you become our yeah. mayor? Well, sounds good to me. I'm yeah. a Chicago voter. Uh, that's my Chicago voter oh, okay, accent. Good, good, good. <laughs> kind of like befuddled. It's <laughs> scratching my head up. See, hey, Rom, didn't he work for uh, Barack Obama? Uh, how many times did I hear that from a Chicago? Uh, Benny worked for Barack Obama. Oh well, let's make yeah. let's make him president, okay? Uh, all right, so stay tuned. <laughs> it's true. Although I don't know, now he's going to work for some. Uh, what do you call it, D? Boutique or boutique? Which one is it? I think boutique. Boutique, right? a boutique investment firm. Not ah. just any old investment firm, a boutique investment. I'm like, when I saw that in the paper, what's the difference between a boutique investment firm and an investment firm? Do you, I, I, do I, I don't know. Don't think, I, I, I guess it's just like, so when he makes his next <laughs> sets of millions of dollars, he can say, you know, I, I did it in a very kind of new and interesting and unique kind of way, you know, I, I don't know. I don't Take know, a chill man. Pill, man. Okay, sorry, Ron, I forgot. <laughs> All right, so looking forward, uh, what, what, what kind of policies do you think Lori Lightfoot, who, I hate to say this, you know, I mean, I'm really encouraged by the early, I'm going to just put it out there, I'm very encouraged by the first month of Lori Lightfoot's campaign. I'm, I'm usually the naysayer, Alden, the one who goes, oh, God, this is wretched. Yeah. But s- touch wood, I mean, fingers crossed. She's, you know? she's, I mean, she's, uh, she's certainly made an impression. Uh, I just have to say, I think it was so incredibly cool that when she was kind of dressing down uh, Ed Burke, and I think her 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 words were, uh, oh, she was talking about the games that he was playing and so on and so forth, and she was like, "I'm not having it." I'm like, "When have I heard of him from <laughs> Chicago say I'm not having it?" No, so, it, it uh, so she scored points for me with yeah. with that. But but no, I mean, on a number of fronts, you know, she's I would say kind of hitting on the right kinds of things. She's come out and she's talked about how. Equity is going to be, um, you know, a, a big part of the kind of work or the way she views that office uh, very differently from from Ron. We were talking about how when he came in office, that perhaps he should have barely been cognizant to that. She's also talked about the black population loss is a thing that needs to be addressed. Now, there's a question of actually what she actually does uh, about that. But she is at least on the record saying that this is something that uh, that needs some attention. Uh, so she uh, created the Office of Equity. Uh, she's talked about uh, uh, policy through a racial lens. Um, she's uh, uh, seems to be much more kind of open uh, and direct about the need for affordable housing. And she made a pick for uh, the housing. Uh, she brought uh, Ram had put money in the budget to bring back the housing uh, department. Uh, and so uh, Mayor Lightfoot actually is going to is bringing it back. Uh, I picked a former colleague of mine who I think is one of the best minds around uh, housing and affordable housing in the city, Marisa Navarro. I think that was a, a, a big plus. Um, uh, and then she's really going strong on 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 ethics and going strong and pushing back against uh, some of the Chicago way uh, provisions of the way the city council has worked. Uh, and it, I know I know Ed Burke was already down on one knee from all of the trouble that he's having, <laughs> yeah. but man, she was not shy about you know kind of trying to deliver the knockout blow. So I think those are all very good things. Um, and from that standpoint, a lot of the things that we've complained about with Emmanuel and with Daly, I think those blind spots are don't exist with her. But she may have some other blind spots where she may need some some care and direction and guidance. And my hope is that she will be open enough to hear people and to change course if uh, she's got folks telling her, you know, Mayor Lightfoot, we appreciate what you've done. 
but here's something where we think you need some growth. Uh, and so, and you know, the No Cop Academy, um, I want to say there's a couple of other things that during the campaign were red flags for people. They were kind of like, you know, I don't think she's kind of strong enough on this point that we'd like her to be, even though she's, I, I think, did a commendable job in leading the police accountability task force during her time as the chair of the police board. Um, there were some cases where folks thought she, you know, well, she actually voted to retain officers even when the superintendent was calling for their, for the officer's departure. And that was a red flag for a number of folks in the uh, police accountability um, reform space. Uh, but if she is backing this GAPA plan, which I think is, uh, revolutionary. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, GAPA is calling for some very strong changes uh, to uh, the ways in which police are. are GAPA held. is an acronym for, can uh, I do this? Uh, I can't. That's why I just said GAPA. GAPA, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. But it has to do with policing policies in the city Right. Of and some very, uh, their, their reform mm-hmm. uh, ideas are, are, are very strong. Uh, so um, uh, her picks for the, for the, uh, for the school board, uh, I think, was also. Uh, a sign that she doesn't have the same blind spots. You know, Rom's police uh, 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 CPS board was largely kind of like a, a corporate who's who. And Mayor Lightfoot has chosen uh, I, my wife who works for CPS was like, she's never known the, the uh, school board to have like parents. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, uh, Chicago public school parents. Right. Yeah, right, right, exactly. right. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, oh, yes. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so on many of these issues that we've had a deficit from our city leadership for many years, uh, Mayor Lightfoot is a, I think, a breath of fresh air. Um, uh, but yeah, like I said, there's, there's, there's still some things, um, you know, so that, you know, on Lincoln Yards there were, you know, she wasn't, I think as forceful as some really wanted her to be, uh, the TIF issues and, you know, those may be the challenges that she has because I think she will inherently see the benefit of those kinds of developments. Um, and the challenge will be, how do I balance the fact that I want this multi-million dollar or the benefits of the economic potential economic benefits to the city for this to happen? And in order to get these folks to say, I'm coming to Chicago instead of going to Dallas or Mm -hmm. Houston or some of these other cities that are that are seen as growing cities. Atlanta is another one. How do I keep them interested, but still meet the needs of my the very diverse needs of my of my uh, municipality and the residents here? And oftentimes that's a balance where it's like. You're trying to figure out what's that sweet spot. And sometimes it may be so thin that you can overshoot and you're like, okay, all right. Okay. So we're giving $2 billion or whatever it is to these, (laughs) the 78 in Lincoln yards and we're getting all this development and we only got 600 units or however many units of affordable housing out of it. But, you know, from my, you know, from their calculus, that was the sweet spot. That was where I could get yeses on both ends and they may miscalculate. And it's like, well, yes, it's a yes for the folks developing Lincoln Yards in 78. But for people who are really in need of affordable housing, who want to be in communities like that, it's like, you know, we need 6,000 units of affordable housing in that place, not 600. Well, uh, we'll close with this because you were on a you were on a roll. Uh, you were you're trying to be as optimistic as you could, and then you suddenly re- remembered Lincoln Yards, <laughs> and you headed off. I'm like, don't go there, all. That we're trying to be, we're trying to end on an optimistic note because the the point of every conversation that you and I have had on this issue has always come down to the policies implemented by the city of Chicago undercut sort of the uh, overall goals, the ideals that we have. So Mayor Rahm would always talk about how he wanted Chicago. You give these speeches. It's a tale of two cities, and Roseland's not as good as Ravenswood. And I want a city where Ravenswood, uh, Roseland's as good as Ravenswood. And then he would implement a policy that would act to the exact opposite. And then he would get some guy in City Hall to write a letter, (laughs) you know, culling through the press releases to cherry pick points to shut all all that up with you know and so i'm hoping that we move away from uh the rhetoric of ideals 
that don't are not reflected by the programs and new go more to the programs. Do you follow what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Policies that you could realistically say will result in an ideal as opposed to just like a word of ideals with policies that work against that. How about that as a goal to start off with? I think that would be a, a goal to, to shoot for. Yes, we should be. I mean, at the end of the day, it's our we're, we we got to be judged on on what we actually enact and not what we say is important. But I often think when people are judged in positions like that, um, that's where people set their opinion. Um, you said something very interesting about Rom kind of being for Rom, you know, kind of uh, the, you know, his time as mayor was spent, uh, and I'm, I'm maybe embellishing a little bit from what you were saying, but you were, what I thought I heard you say was that he was really about kind of promoting himself and so on and so forth. And in the closing months of his, uh, of his time in office, that seemed very apparent to me anyway. Uh, and, and to some degree, anybody who's finishing up their time wants to try to get things done and so on and so forth, their legacy and all of that. And I get that. But he was <laughs> in the ways in which he talked about uh, some of the things that were going on. I think he was leaving out a lot where it was like, OK, yeah, you've done this. But what about I, I, I'll, I'll go. I'm going to just take a break. I, I was make the our our good friend McDumkey again challenged me. Who is worse in Ben, in your opinion, Mayor Rahm or Mayor Daly? And so I dedicated a column to this. Oh, wow. And I uh, ultimately decided that uh, Mayor Rahm was worse than Mayor Daly. Uh, and the, the tiebreaker was that Rahm was insufferable in his last few months in office where he was going around promoting yeah, everything he did, completely rewriting everything he had done, not an honest bone in his body <laughs> in assessing what he did, the challenges he faced, whereas Daly was rel- relatively benevolent. Once he decided he wasn't gonna run, he left the scene. It was like Elvis has left the building. Yeah. And he remember he even put in like a, so I forget the dude's name, the guy to run the Board of Education because he didn't want it was some guy from uh, uh, Civic Chicago, Philanthropic Chicago, uh, Terry something. Anyway, it doesn't oh, matter. Oh, uh, Mazzani. Yeah, Terry yeah. Mazzani. Mm-hmm. He put him in, you know what? I don't want the next mayor to be burdened with. Oh, I remember yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, and he put Mazzani in, and I'm backing out. He basically backed out and got out, and like he knew he was the man daily that ran the city for. T- he didn't have to go around proving it. Rob yeah. was running around to the very end. My legacy. Yeah. So anyway, you know, it's it's hard for me not to talk about Rom because you're right. I still the 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 stress, the traumatic stress is still. Anyway, Alden Lowry, it's a blast talking to you. This may have been my most uh, favorite of all the conversations we had. This one was a lot of fun. Yeah, because we got to curse. Uh, you know, hey, uh, let the record show that Alden was the only one who cursed during this. <laughs> and there you go. I refrain, but I will just since you said it, I said, yeah, the shithole countries. That was the <laughs> quote from our illustrious president. Uh, anyway, thanks uh, so much, Alden, and best of luck to you at BEZ, and hope you guys continue to conquer the world there journalistically, all right? I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we... Uh I'm glad we brought the band back together again. Yeah, the band is back together, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. The band is back together. This is a uh, special bonus is- uh, issue of the band, or the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, everybody. See you Tuesday.